everyone, and welcome back to Crisis of Crime. I'm your host, Rachel Means, and I'm a criminologist. Thank you for joining me for my weekly podcast where I discuss the issues facing our criminal justice system. Today, I want to talk about how gender relates to crime. I'll start by discussing how the differences in gender roles affect criminality, and then I'll go over the two most prominent schools of thought in regards to feminist criminology. Lastly, I'll be discussing the biggest problems with human trafficking in the United States, specifically sex trafficking, and what reforms we can make to help solve those problems. Let's go ahead and get started. Traditionally in the United States, girls are raised with a specific gender role, which emphasizes that girls and women must be obedient, modest about their bodies and sex, and that we are dependent on others, particularly men, and this leads to women being more passive and less confrontational. This ultimately lessens the chance that women will engage in crimes, especially violent crimes. The opposite can be said for boys and men. Boys are raised to be tough, independent, career-driven, and are told not to show any weak emotions, but that aggression is acceptable and that seeking sexual pleasure is normal and oftentimes encouraged. This leads men to only know how to express themselves through aggression and physical outlets such as sex and violence. Also, men are encouraged to focus more on their careers and success rather than raising a family. All these things lead to men and boys being more likely to engage in crime and more specifically, violent crime. The personalities of young men and boys are more conducive to criminality because of a couple reasons. First, they are more likely to interact with delinquent peers, and they tend to be lower in self-control and social control compared to females. Additionally, occurrences such as head injuries are known to increase a person's chances of criminality, and these head injuries are more common among males because of the activities they take part in, since many male activities tend to be more physically aggressive. On the other hand, young women can have an increased chance of criminality if they enter puberty at a younger age, and this is for similar reasons as males. With the female body maturing early, young girls are more likely to engage in romantic relationships and interact with delinquent peers. The reason that interacting with delinquent peers has such a significant impact on a young person's chances of criminality is because of the social learning theories and differential association. As you'll remember, differential association suggests that crime is learned from one person to the next. Therefore, if a young individual is engaging with delinquents often, they will likely learn to be delinquent as well. We can also look at the strain theory to understand why men are more prone to criminality. The strain theory suggests that individuals will commit crimes because they are unable to achieve cultural goals through legitimate means. For men, the cultural goals are usually things such as not being able to provide for their families or not being able to achieve a certain status, which could be something like keeping up with cultural trends to emulate wealth and success. Males will react to strain with moral outrage, and since males are lower in constraint, self, and social control, and are higher in negative emotionality, they have a much higher chance of engaging in illegal activities to meet their goals. Women, on the other hand, have cultural goals such as being sexually modest, especially for girls and young women, or becoming a mother, which might be a cultural goal for an adult woman. And females will react to strain with anger, depression, and guilt. 
These emotions are less likely to lead to illegal activity compared to those emotions of men. Instead, for women, these behaviors are much more likely to lead to self-destructive behaviors. The majority of criminologists throughout history have been men. Almost all of the theories of crime have been made by those men studying other men and developing their theories based on their findings. In general, criminality has been seen as a predominantly male problem since most criminals were men, and if a female was offending, it was because she had a pathological defect in her biological makeup or she had a disruption in her psyche. It wasn't until the 1970s with the rise of the women's movement in the United States that we see women becoming criminologists and studying the female offender, which we call feminist criminology. When criminologists began studying the female offender, they were broken into two separate schools of thought, the liberal theory of feminist criminology and the radical theory of feminist criminology. Liberal feminists believed that as women became more equal with men and had the same opportunities, that they would begin to offend in the same way that men do, and there would be a much greater number of female offenders so that crime statistics would be more evenly split between men and women, kind of 50-50. They hypothesized that there would be an increase in violent crimes and white-collar crimes by women as they gained equality with men. Now, this hypothesis has been proven incorrect. While the number of female offenders has increased since the women's liberation movement, the types of crimes women are committing are the traditional female offenses, such as larceny, fraud, and forgery, which can be seen in crimes such as shoplifting, welfare fraud, and forging checks. Radical feminism puts the patriarchy at the center of the theory for why women offend. Radical feminists believe that the oppression of women leads to female offenders. For example, we see that there is gender inequality in sentencing, and that many U.S. laws promote traditional female gender roles and exercise control over a female's body. Radical feminists also take note of the fact that the patriarchy is conducive to the physical and sexual abuse of women. A survey of girls in a juvenile detention center in Wisconsin showed that 79% of them had been subject to physical abuse in their lifetime. 50% of them said they had been raped or forced into sexual acts, and 32% of them had been subject to incest where they were sexually abused by their parents or close relatives. Oftentimes, when young girls are experiencing abuse at home, they will run away and end up on the streets finding that they need to engage in criminal acts for survival, such as stealing money or food, or exchanging sexual favors for money, food, or shelter. And this is an important point that I want you to keep in mind as we move to the next section regarding human trafficking. Because the reality is that the majority of sex workers and prostitutes are victims of human trafficking. It is estimated that between 15,000 and 50,000 women and children are forced into sexual slavery in the United States every year. Although, research by the Department of Health and Human Services suggests that that number could be closer to 325,000, and it can happen to anyone of any race or nationality. 
There are some men who are victims of sex trafficking, but for the most part, it affects women and children. Men are victims of human trafficking, but they are more likely to be victims of labor trafficking rather than sex trafficking. Counting the number of sex trafficking victims can be hard to gauge, and we are going to discuss why that is as we go through this section. Victims are generally trafficked through pimps, gangs, and family members. For pimps, it's usually a single person controlling the victim or victims, and they manipulate them physically, emotionally, and psychologically. The pimp manipulates the victim to engage in sex for money where all the profits are given to the pimp. For gangs, the victim or victims are controlled by multiple people and can be used for sex for the gang members, or they may be used as a prostitute to gain revenue for the gang. In regards to family members, the victim is trafficked by members of their own family, such as parents allowing others to have sex with their children for money. Another facet of this is a family may sell their child into a forced marriage. Now, all of the above scenarios involve something we call survival sex, and this is where the victim feels that they will be harmed or killed, or their loved ones will be harmed or killed, if they do not continue to engage in sexual acts. While some sex trafficking occurs on street corners, the majority of trafficking occurs online, and this can happen through common platforms such as Craigslist and Facebook. There have also been illegal sites labeled adult service providers, which generally get taken down as they are discovered by law enforcement, but another one will quickly pop up. It's a cycle of law enforcement finding a new site, taking it down, and another one being created. The most common places for sex trafficking to occur are hotels, motels, massage parlors, and truck stops. Because the victims are left with little to no money and are fully reliant on their traffickers to survive, they generally have no access to communication with the outside world and cannot ask for help. This is also combined with the threats of violence from traffickers. Therefore, it is extremely difficult for victims to ask for help and to ultimately get out of their situation. Doctors and nurses are trained to look for signs that someone is a victim of human trafficking, since it's assumed that at some point they're going to need to receive medical care. Sex trafficking in the United States surges during large events, especially sporting events. It was estimated that around 10,000 victims of sex trafficking were brought to Miami during the 2010 Super Bowl. Now, I've heard quite a few people calling for the legalization of sex work and prostitution in the United States, but unfortunately, studies show that countries and areas where prostitution is legal actually have higher rates of human trafficking. Additionally, surveys of sex workers and prostitutes reveal that 89% of them are trying to escape or are being held against their will. Now, I want to note that there are cases of women using sex work as their primary source of income where there is no coercion or force involved. This is most commonly seen in countries where job opportunities for women are scarce or hardly pay a living wage, and prostitution is a way for those individuals to be able to live a life of comfort or be able to support their families. In those cases, radical feminists are all on board. It's only in the cases where victims are being forced into sex work that we consider it human trafficking. Prostitution used to be legal in every U.S. state, but it was generally frowned upon. Brothels were a common place to have in towns and cities, but they were seen as eyesores. 
So the government moved to ban prostitution, but it was unsuccessful, and instead created red light districts where they could confine the acts of prostitution to a certain area so it was out of the view of the public. At the beginning of the 19th century, states moved to ban prostitution, and by 1971, all states except for Nevada have banned prostitution. Prostitution laws vary from state to state. Some have harsher punishments than others. The most common way for law enforcement to charge someone with prostitution is to pose as a john or someone looking to solicit a prostitute and catch them in the act of offering sexual acts for money. Law enforcement can charge the prostitute even if the so-called john does not intend to go through with the sexual acts. Now this is a controversial tactic since it can be seen as entrapment. Law enforcement also looks for those individuals who are a third party to the act of prostitution, such as someone leasing a house for the purposes of prostitution, transporting an individual who will be used for prostitution, and taking a person against their will for the purpose of prostitution. Generally, the act of prostitution and the act of soliciting a prostitute are misdemeanors, while those who pimp and pander prostitutes are generally charged with felonies, especially if minors are involved. So I want to look at examples from two different states and their sentencing for crimes regarding prostitution and human trafficking. We will be looking at New York and Texas. In both states, a first-time offender receiving a charge for prostitution will receive a Class B misdemeanor, which can carry up to 90 days in jail with a fine of $500 in New York and up to 180 days in jail with a fine of $2,000 in Texas. Now, in New York, each time someone is charged with prostitution, they will receive that same Class B misdemeanor. However, in Texas, each time they are charged with prostitution, the more severe the punishments will become. For a second charge of prostitution, they will receive a Class A misdemeanor, which carries up to one year in jail and a fine up to $4,000. For three or more charges of prostitution, they will receive a state jail felony, which carries anywhere between six months to two years in a state jail facility, and a fine up to $10,000. Now, here's our first problem. These are the penalties for prostitution. And as we have discussed in earlier sections, the majority of prostitutes and sex workers are victims of sex trafficking. All cases where a prostitute has a pimp or is a member of a gang, they are a victim of sex trafficking. If they are a minor, they are a victim of sex trafficking. But yet, these victims are being criminalized and put in jail or given large fines. In some cases, they're becoming felons, which is something that will make having a normal life in the future extremely hard. And on top of that, oftentimes when a prostitute is arrested, their trafficker will bail them out and will continue the cycle of abuse. Now for the charges against pimps, gangs, and human traffickers. For the purposes of definitions, pimps and gang members who promote prostitution are usually charged with compelling prostitution. Human trafficking requires that the offender partake in the illegal trade of humans, and that definition can get misconstrued. In New York, compelling prostitution and human trafficking are charged the same way. Both are a Class B felony carrying a sentence between 3 to 25 years in prison and a fine up to $5,000. However, in Texas, they carry different charges. Compelling prostitution is not as serious of an offense as human trafficking. 
Compelling prostitution is a third-degree felony with a sentence up to 10 years in prison and a fine up to $10,000, while human trafficking is a first-degree felony with a punishment of a minimum of five years all the way up to life in prison with a fine of $10,000. And just a quick side note, the difference in the distinction of felonies are just because the states vary on how they classify them. So New York uses classes while Texas uses degrees. This brings us to our second problem. Some states are not identifying that pimps and gang members are, in fact, sex traffickers. And this can explain the huge difference in the estimated number of sex trafficking victims. So, in New York, victims who are trafficked by pimps and gang members are more likely to be considered victims of sex trafficking, while in Texas, victims who are trafficked by pimps and gang members may not be counted as victims of sex trafficking. Let's take a look at the problems we've identified and try to figure out what we can do to help solve them. The first problem was that victims of human trafficking are being criminalized. So first and foremost, we need to change the laws in the United States that are criminalizing victims of human trafficking. Sex work and prostitution should be decriminalized, but not legalized. Decriminalization means that the act isn't legal, but it's also not subject to criminal charges. Instead, it can be subject to civil charges. Civil charges will not punish victims as if they are criminals, but can instead require them to engage in social and treatment programs, such as substance abuse rehabilitation programs, since many victims are addicted to drugs, which is usually initiated by their abusers to help control them. They can also be required to go to counseling and receive job and skills training. We also need to be providing safe houses and homeless shelters to have a safe place for victims or potential victims to take refuge at. Additionally, we need to train law enforcement on what human trafficking actually looks like. Currently, for the most part, law enforcement treats prostitutes as criminals. And since many victims of sex trafficking have been threatened, manipulated, and forced to be addicted to drugs, they generally don't ask for help when they're being arrested. The federal government is working to create efforts to reduce human trafficking by identifying and helping victims, while also identifying traffickers and bringing them to justice. The federal government is requiring that 15 of its agencies need to create detailed initiatives on how to combat human trafficking. Some of the agencies and departments include Homeland Security, Labor, Health and Human Services, Housing and Urban Development, the FBI, agriculture, and education. Additionally, some cities such as Atlanta, Chicago, and Minneapolis are leading the way to model how to combat human trafficking. These three cities have received funding from an initiative called the Partnership for Freedom and will be identifying which programs are most successful in the efforts to end human trafficking. It will include measures such as expanding child welfare services, programs to end homelessness, the creation of safe houses for victims, identifying cases of wage exploitation, and enforcing the minimum wage. The truth is, we have a long way to go in the fight against human trafficking. A lot of it starts with education. If you are interested to learn more about human trafficking, I would recommend reading a report published by Polaris titled The Typology of Modern Slavery, where they discuss the 25 types of modern-day slavery. It's very eye-opening to see just how many industries have people at risk of being victims of human trafficking. 
I'll put the link in the description for anyone who wants to take a look at that report. Now let's take a look at our second problem, that not all who are trafficking victims are being treated as sex traffickers. Pimps and gang members and all those involved with sex trafficking should be charged with human trafficking. While in prison, offenders should be rehabilitated rather than just carrying out their sentence. They need to receive counseling where they can work towards being able to empathize with their victims and work towards understanding how their actions affected them. They should be educated and provided with job and or skills training. Studies show that low literacy and poor education lead to more violent behaviors. Substance abuse counseling and rehabilitation should be provided to those inmates who are struggling with substance abuse. Jails and prisons should be focusing primarily on rehabilitation rather than punishment. This way, when the offender has paid their debt to society and they are able to leave prison, they can be a productive and positive member of society rather than becoming a recidivist and falling back into the original crime they were arrested for, such as a pimp returning to being a sex trafficker. This is also an opportunity for restorative justice. If the victims of human trafficking are comfortable with meeting their traffickers after the offender has been rehabilitated, it can bring closure to both parties for an offender to be able to seek forgiveness for what they have done, and in some cases, even for the victim to offer their forgiveness. All right, folks, so that's all for today's episode. So I want to know your thoughts. Do you agree that sex work and prostitution should be decriminalized? And to all those students out there studying criminal justice, what other theories do you think help explain how gender affects crime? Let me know your thoughts on Twitter. You can find me at Crisis of Crime, or you can send me an email at crisisofcrime at gmail.com. As always, I look forward to hearing from you. If you want to check out any of my sources for today's episode, they are listed in the description below. Thank you all so much for spending time with me today, and until next time, this has been Crisis of Crime.